0: was the episode around the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and U.S. efforts basically to to persuade our allies not to join. We all know how that turned out. didn't work out so well. Pretty much all U.S. allies have decided to go ahead and join the AIIB. I think the lesson from that is you can't beat something with nothing. And the idea that the U.S. could have a purely negative foreign policy, a foreign policy just based on containing China and not putting forward its own affirmative vision of what it stands for in the world, I think that is a policy that is
1: due to Before we get started today, a public service announcement. I am on the job market and have given up all hope of returning to China. If you know of any job openings on the East Coast, or hey, let's shoot for the moon, work on the Biden campaign, please get in touch. I'm at georschneider at gmail.com. Hello and welcome to China Talk. Today to talk sanctions, we have Eddie Fishman, who worked in the Obama administration on the State Department's policy planning staff, is currently a fellow at the Atlantic Council in CNAS, and now works at VIA. Do note that we recorded this a few weeks ago before the new Xinjiang and Hong Kong sanctions were announced. So Eddie, recently you wrote a piece for this podcast's new home network, Lawfare, about the past and future of sanctions. You, you start with this fascinating analogy about how many see financial sanctions today the way. Um, folks in the 20th century thought of air power. Mind expanding on that
0: idea? Sure. So thanks, Jordan, again, for having me on. And I think this is a really important topic because sanctions have really become the main tool of coercion that the United States uses in its foreign policy. And yet it's really not studied all that much. So if you go back uh, about 100 years uh, after World War I, a big preoccupation amongst military theorists was how can we fight a war in a way that achieves our policy objectives without engaging in this type of mass casualty war of attrition, the trench warfare that sort of characterized World War One, And one of these theorists, uh, Giulio Due, is an Italian, basically came up with this concept of command of the air, which was you could use air power not just to support military operations on the ground, but actually to launch um, strikes against the infrastructure um, and sort of industrial plant of the enemy to achieve really a fast and decisive victory without engaging in a long, protracted mass casualty war. This analogy, perfect, really does apply to how a lot of policymakers think of sanctions today. Sanctions are used to achieve some pretty, pretty large objectives. If you look at some of the objectives the Trump administration is pursuing, they go all the way up to regime change. And the, I think a big part of the appeal of sanctions is that they all those types of risks that were um, accorded to air power um, about 100 years ago. We're now seeing some of that creep into the world of economic warfare.
1: To be clear, it wasn't just Italian theorists.
0: This belief went uh,
1: right to the height of the Reichswehr, as well as in the U.S., the FDR. I remember when uh, creating the U.N. wanted a sort of international air force combined with a navy that would just start bombing countries whenever they didn't do what the Security Council said. So this was certainly not a a fringe thing to think that air power was a, a, a real panacea. There's a China angle here, too. Clearly channeled, who ran the Flying Tigers out of northwest China, really thought that the key to Chiang Kai-shek winning the war against the Japanese was air power, which of course did not end up, was was certainly helpful, but was not the decisive factor in him in him fighting the Japanese. So anyways, coming back to sanctions, you talked a little bit about why they are the contemporary to-go for solving all Sorts of international uh, security challenges that the U.S. faces. Mind, uh, mind expanding on how we got to this point where sanctions were really the, the 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 first and sometimes the only card that the U.S. plays in confronting some major challenges like Iran and and, and North Korea and so on. So.
0: Sure. Yeah. I think I think the conventional wisdom on this is that you know sanctions are used um, because they're easy and they're sort of a way for political leaders to show that they're doing something to respond to a challenge without really putting U.S. skin in the game or really risking all too much. And and I think that factor is accurate, but I think there's actually a broader reason. So if you look back sort of to the immediate aftermath of 9-11 in the United States, the goal for the United States, at least purportedly in terms of invading Iraq, was to stop an aggressive authoritarian regime from acquiring nuclear weapons, right? That was that was sort of the principle that that led the Bush administration into that war. Of course, proven proven a bad premise over time, unfortunately. But I think one of the lessons there was spending trillions of dollars and thousands of American lives and hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives over a long period of time is not a particularly great investment to try to to try to constrain another country's nuclear program. And so I think later sort of in that decade, when Iran's nuclear program came to the fore, U.S. policymakers really were looking around for other ways to try to stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons that didn't involve protracted military engagement. So it's really similar, if you think about it, to um, the type of thinking that Douay was doing after World War I. And I think what wound up happening is, under the Bush administration, the leadership of people like Stuart Levy at the Treasury Department developed much stronger versions of economic and financial sanctions that they started applying onto Iran. This sort of um, really came to a head toward the end of the Bush administration, but was really given given its full form in the Obama years under Stuart uh, Levy's leadership at Treasury and then David Cohen's leadership. Financial sanctions and financial warfare really became America's tool of choice, and I think it was in reaction to what was seen. As the failure of America's attempts to stop Iraq's nuclear, war, uh, nuclear weapons program, that that sort of inspired this this you know shift to financial warfare in the United States.
1: But as you write, uh, sanctions today are too convoluted, too static, and too incremental. So, uh, Eddie, walk me through this indictment. Maybe let's start with convoluted.
0: Sure. So the the reason I wrote this piece, Jordan, is because you know there are you know such high hopes um, invested in sanctions in the U.S. and yet. You know, really, no matter where you look, policy is failing. Under the Trump administration, it's really hard to find any U.S. sanctions program that are advancing discernible policy objectives. So the first problem that I identify and that you mentioned is that sanctions are too convoluted. And that's actually a relatively straightforward concept. America accords a lot of different policy objectives to sanctions. So, you know, with respect to Russia, it's both to try to persuade Putin to get out of Crimea, persuade Putin to get out of the Donbass, to stop Russian cyber attacks, to stop Russian chemical weapons attacks or human rights abuses. And when you have sort of these mounting objectives for sanctions that sort of snowball over time, it's very difficult for the adversary to understand what they have to do to actually get out from under sanctions. So as sanctions become more convoluted, their, their, their efficacy as a policy lever is decreased right because if if a foreign government views sanctions as sort of just demonizing every single action that they do they sort of have to conclude that there's basically nothing they can do to get out from under sanctions so they sort of lose their power to affect a foreign government's policy calculus
1: i mean it's it's coming back to like the 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 motive of sanctions there's this there's on the one hand you can look at it from the the perspective of oh the us wants these countries to do certain things or stop actions they're doing. And I think, first off, like, if you want to evaluate the effectiveness of sanctions, like the countries that are doing these objectionable things knew they were objectionable in the first place and probably had already done the expected value calculation of like whatever foreign response would be. And it was probably going to be more worth it for them in the first place.
0: I've been thinking about quite a bit for the five years or so, even dating back to my time at the State Department, is what can the United States do? To make sanctions an effective policy tool for deterrence, not just coercion, right? I mean, the current mode of action, Jordan, um, is exactly as you say, which is a foreign government takes some objectionable step, and then America responds with sanctions. And ostensibly, the point of that is to say, well, reverse this objectionable objectionable step, and we'll we'll remove sanctions, right? But that's way harder, of course, than stopping a country from taking that objectionable step in the first place. And I think one of the problems is, unlike collective defense in Europe, for example, where it's very clear that if Russia were to invade a NATO country, America is on the hook to come to that country's defense militarily. Yeah, I mean, we don't have that sense of collective defense really for non-military threats, right? And I think that's a big area um, of innovation we need in sanctions is to have mechanisms in which the US and allies, hopefully, can clearly identify triggers for sanctions and then basically also give a sense of what magnitude of sanctions will actually come into, into play, right? Because in order for a foreign government to accurately perform the expected value calculation that you, you reference, they need to know the type of sanctions that are going to come their way if they take that step. And I think right now they don't know. And that's because you the U.S. doesn't even know. We, they don't plan um, in advance before, before issuing these sanctions. It's usually after a crisis has already started. You have these emergency meetings in the Situation Room to come up with sanctions.
1: Sure. So let's 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 play out this 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 hypothetical a little bit. One of the things I'm I'm worried about with the with this preemptive sanctions with these preemptive sanctions plans that sort of need to be public to be effective, right? Is then you get into all these domestic interest groups sort of lobbying against it, saying, "No, don't 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 tax salts, tax steel, don't don't stop <laughs> imports of of." Of coffee, start import stop imports of oranges or or what have you, and it, it seems like this is really opening the you know at that crisis moment, the U.S. or or European governments have have a lot of leverage in saying hey this is a big thing we have to respond to it, but if you end up sort of pre um prescripting these these actions you you could end up and you could you could end up actually having a, a weaker response that because getting folks to agree on this sort of thing before uh, any provocation happens would, would sort of dilute the final package.
0: Okay. So this is an interesting point you make, Jordan, and, and it really actually gets to one of my other my other um, points on sanctions, which is that they're too incremental. I mean, any any sort of sanction that is explicitly against oranges or something like that, to me, is by definition an incremental sanction, unless for whatever reason you're sanctioning a country who only exports oranges. So yeah, I, I, w- I would agree. You don't want to come out with super specific things like that in advance, right? And I think what you need to do is be very clear about what these triggers are and don't, and don't set ones that aren't serious, right? So to take an example, were a foreign country to interfere in a future US election. I think we can agree that that's quite a serious violation of America's sovereignty and something that we'd want to respond powerfully to. So say Russia or some other country were to do that, I don't think oranges would be the target or something that specific. I think it would be really going after sort of the, the lifeblood of the economy. So that's really the financial sector, um, in Russia's ca- kind of case, the the energy sector. And, and those, 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 those things aren't ones that are really debatable. And so I, I do take your point that if you're too specific and saying, hey, we're going to do this or that, or t- sanction this company in particular, that might not be a good idea. But saying that, making something very explicit like, if you're going to interfere in an election, your um, three largest banks are going to be cut off from the U.S. financial system. I think that's really the only way to draw a clear red line against things like interfering in U.S. elections.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, again, when you do the three largest banks, there's always, there's always, I feel like there's an aspect of, of preparation which these, these companies and firms can make if they kind of have this like a sword of Damocles hanging over their hanging over their head and maybe assets gets shifts to the to the fourth and fifth largest and and whatnot. So they're interesting, interesting positives and negatives, but I think it's it's definitely a tool that that certainly has some applications. So so Eddie, talk about this idea you have of time limited sanctions, which um, just scrolling through the the sort of OFAC listings the other day of things that have been going on for 17, 20 years in countries that have been out of the headlines for for over a decade now, uh, it seems like it definitely could have some utility.
0: And I think one of the things we can do to to really confront this third problem of sanctions I identify in my piece, which is that they're too static, is to get comfortable with imposing sanctions and saying these sanctions will lapse within a year or two years or even five years, absent a, a proactive U.S. step to to sort of renew the sanctions. And I, The benefit of that is you sort of force policymakers to consistently review sanctions and, and try to ensure that they're continuing to actually advance uh, tangible policy goals. Uh, and I think the other the, the flip side of this is also important for US policy, which is that we should get comfortable with time, li- time limited r- sanctions relief, right? So too often sanctions are seen as a binary choice. It's it's either sanctions are in place or they're removed entirely. I think if we got comfortable with saying, okay, well, if North Korea or if Russia or if Iran does this interim step, will provide six months of sanctions relief.
1: We actually <laughs> did
0: that in 20, 2015 with respect to Belarus. And it's been, in my opinion, really the, the underlying factor that has led U.S.-Belarusian relations to improve over the last five. Years. So I think getting more comfortable with time-limited sanctions and time-limited relief mm-hmm. would add much needed dynamism to U.S. sanctions policy.
1: Yeah, because then you, then you doing that, doing it both ways means you get out of the like Taliban trap of telling them, oh yeah, we're going to do a surge, but we're going to leave in leave in 18 months, which, which again, if we're thinking about the expected value calculation of dictator X, considering doing obnoxious thing Y, knowing that all they have to do is sit on their hands for two years, might make it seem, might make the, the, the Western sanctions seem less painful, but if it becomes this more dynamic thing where you can really tune it to make sure that, 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 that it really hurts for these countries and what may not be worth it, then you potentially end up with a more effective sanctions program. So the domestic politics of of sanctions have always been fascinating to me because you, you end up getting these real clashes of congressional and executive power. On the one hand, for the most of this conversation, we've been talking about sanctions as this strictly foreign policy tool to help the US stop conflict around the world or attack not or, or stop non-proliferation or fight terrorism or what have you. But there's also a domestic policy aspect of a lot of these sanctions regimes where the the president or Congress just sort of wants to be able to tell constituencies that they're doing something, as opposed to doing something so intense that it ends up changing what the what the country or leader did in the first place. So what do you think are the salient aspects of the domestic politics of sanctions, and how could they be reformulated or, or rethought through in a way that makes them ultimately more effective in achieving the foreign policy goals?
0: Sure. Yeah. So one of the complexities of US sanctions is that it's not just the executive branch, but it's also Congress that has the, the power to really get specific in terms of imposing sanctions. And I do think oftentimes congressional action on sanctions is driven more by domestic politics. In the Obama administration, Congress was very aggressive in imposing new Iran sanctions. And I think a lot of that was driven by domestic need to say, hey, we're doing a lot against Iran and we're not being soft on Iran. And I think in the Trump administration, on the flip side, you've seen Congress play a bigger role in Russia sanctions. Probably the most significant piece of legislation that Congress has passed outside of the, some of the um, COVID relief acts. And the tax cut that that, you know Trump tax cut was the countering America's adversaries um, through sanctions act, which was passed in uh, in summer of 2017 over a Trump over Trump's uh, veto, veto proof majority. So, and that was because Congress didn't trust Trump to administer Russia sanctions in a way that advanced U.S. interests. So, I do think there is that domestic domestic politics factor at play, and I do think it also does affect. The executive branch. a desire to, to to be seen to do something. But as I mentioned before, I don't I don't think that's really the only factor here. And I, and, I, and I think policymakers really actually do believe that sanctions can change foreign governments' calculus. And I think the tragedy of sanctions today is that the way that they're Im- their way that they're implemented by the U.S. government really seldom achieves that goal.
1: Eddie, you you've laid out this vision of what sanctions could be. But now I have a challenge for you: and fixing some sanctions. Some points in history where you think the right mix and the right setup of sanctions would have made a, a real difference and potentially changed history for the better. Okay, so so first off, let's let's stop
0: Pearl Harbor from happening. Wow, Pearl Harbor. So I think actually I should back up and say that sanctions are not, I think, a substitute for the use of military force. And the way I would think about Pearl Harbor is, in some way, was precipitated by sort of a use of sanction, right? I mean, the United States had stopped uh, basically oil to Japan and um, Japan really wanted to consolidate its control um, of Southeast Asia, I guess, Indonesia, Brunei, et cetera, in order to have its own oil resources. So I think actually the way I would use Pearl Harbor as if I were trying to draw lessons from Pearl Harbor to current sanctions policy, it's that while policymakers may view sanctions as a low-cost way of getting, advancing U.S. interests in the world, there are risks. And it's not necessarily the case that an adversary will respond symmetrically to sanctions, right? I mean, there are asymmetric responses to sanctions. I mean, there's a theory out there that, you know, in part, Putin and Moscow's intervention in the 2016 U.S. election was part of response to sanctions and, and some other tools that had been levied against Russia um, in the second Obama term. So... I think one of the lessons maybe from Pearl Harbor is that it's very important to not only think about symmetric responses to sanctions but also potentially asymmetric responses.
1: So let's take some let's take some contemporary challenges that you would apply your your framework towards.
0: So I think one of the most important things for policymakers to do now is to try to think about what are the non-military threats that the United States faces that we do want to deter. And I think that's that's really the first step. The second step is once you sort of have those sort of determined steps in place to identify the types of sanctions we would impose were that tripwire to be crossed. And then the third step is really to get ready, get the, the state apparatus in the United States ready to actually impose those types of sanctions. So, you know, just to name, you know, one example, I mean, it's probably, I'd say, one of the most serious derelictions of duty we've seen under the Trump administration is basically zero attempt to learn from the 2016 assault on the U.S. democracy and figure out how to stop that from happening in the future. And that, that by the way, doesn't just apply to Russia, but we've seen other countries, including China, interfere um, in the U.S. domestic politics in ways that could be seen as true interference in our democratic pro- processes. And so I think on, on that account, sanctions could play a very strong role in deterring those types of attacks on U.S. democracy. One of the key frameworks I lay out in my lawfare piece is that For sanctions in which the United States is actually trying to affect the decision calculus of a foreign government, it's important to distinguish between coercive sanctions and deterrent sanctions. And what that means is coercive sanctions are sanctions that are already in place in which we're trying to force or compel a foreign government to take some new action, whereas deterrent sanctions are are sanctions that could be in place later that are basically aimed at preventing a foreign government from taking an action. And the reason I think this dichotomy and this distinction is important is because for coercive sanctions. So for sanctions that are saying, you know, that are really trying to, you know, compel a foreign government to do something new, I think it's really hard for the US to stack multiple objectives on top of each other, right? Mm. I mean, one of the challenges I think that the Trump administration has seen right now is they 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 I think genuinely believed that if they pulled out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal, and just layered sanctions on Iran, that they might be able to get everything they wanted out of Tehran, right? Maybe not only an end to the nuclear program, but also an end to Iran's support for proxies and terrorist groups and potentially an end to Iran's human rights abuses. But I think that's, that's a fantasy because what basically winds up happening and what we've seen with all of these, quote unquote, maximum pressure sanctions that the Trump administration has levied is that when you layer those objectives on top of each other, the net result is regime change. You're basically saying to the Iranian government or the North Korean government that the only way out from sanctions is to call it quits. And the the fact of the matter is that sanctions will never achieve that objective. It is completely irrational for the U.S. government to expect a foreign government to commit political suicide to free itself from sanctions. So I think the lesson here is that for coercive sanctions, the U.S. really needs to think hard about its what its one or maybe two objectives are and just leave it at that. That doesn't mean for deterrent sanctions, they can't have more objectives. If we want to try to deter five different things, that's totally fine. But once sanctions are imposed, they really should be targeted really at only one or two objectives.
1: Yeah. And this, this, this comes back to the domestic politics issue I was harping on earlier, because it is easier speaking on a State Department rostrum to say, we want... Iran to do we want to we want Iran to do all the things we want them to do and unless they do all those things we're not going to let up versus having to you know confront reality as you say and understand that of the five things you'll maybe only get one or two with this strategy and level with the American people and level with Congress and level with the the sort of interest groups at stake and say no we're we've made our prioritization and we're sorry that we can't solve every problem in the world but this is the best we can do. And, and, and having that kind of honest appraisal of the limits of American power is not something that this, this administration is is really comfortable with.
0: I think that's exactly right, Jordan. And it's not just the limits of American power in some sort of broad sense. It's just the limits of what sanctions can achieve, right? And it would be amazing if the. US could issue some sanctions right that don't ultimately don't really affect the US economy. I think that's a really important important thing to note here. The sanctions that are currently in place, be it even on countries like Russia or Venezuela that have, have historically had quite a bit of economic activity with the United States, they barely affect the U.S. economy. It's, it's, it's yeah. really minuscule, the effect on the U.S. economy. So if you could tell me that we could impose some sanctions on Russia that don't really affect the U.S. economy, but the net result is that Russia removes all of its troop, troops and equipment from the Donbass and Ukraine regains its sovereignty in the East, or that North Korea gives up its nuclear program or Iran gives up its nuclear program that is a massive win right i yeah. mean that is that if the us could achieve that that would be one of the bigger diplomatic and foreign policy accomplishments of the 21st century and i think that's really why it is so tragic that the trump administration walked away from the iran nuclear deal because that that really was one of in my view the crowning foreign policy achievements of contemporary us foreign policy
1: well yes it is a shame. But anyways, here we are. Here we are today. So another piece you wrote, which I I found was was pretty interesting, Eddie, was about the incipient New World Order that you wrote about in Politico, brought on by coronavirus and all the changes we've seen over the world over the past few months. One of the things I wanted to focus on and and challenge you a little bit on is the argument you're saying that we're actually moving closer to a domestic consensus on a lot of international issues. And while, which, which I don't necessarily disagree with, it's based on polling about people wanting to do more things about climate change and, and, and thinking cyber attacks are a problem and whatnot. But my sense is that the main driver of that is fear of China and fear of China's rise. And there, at the same time in this piece, you also talk about the sort of dangers of scapegoating and putting blame for all the world problems on this. So coming back to the last time we had a real Consensus in the 1950s and, and, and 60s before the, the Vietnam War sort of blew that up, there was a real sense that the Soviet Union was the big fear. So, what do you think about this tension between the sort of like unity of the US and its policymaking establishment and Congress on doing things that mainstream think tanks would like? From you've seen recently spending $100 billion on, on research and developments to putting all this money behind semiconductors and what have you, with the flip side that that sort of comes at the cost of potentially overstating the risk that uh, China uh, poses to the U.S. and and the future world order?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's, it's a really, really good question. And um, this actually touches on something I'm quite concerned about that I didn't touch on in my Politico piece directly, but there is this thought that there is a growing bipartisan consensus among sort of Washington foreign policy thinkers and, and foreign policy mm-hmm. advisors that we do need a more confrontational or, or competitive posture toward China. I'm not going to dispute that, but I do think it would be really a shame and I think quite folly for the United States to focus its entire foreign policy on China and to basically try to reprise containment and substitute the Chinese menace for the Soviet menace. I think that would be really bad for U.S. foreign policy and I think doomed to fail. Something I saw during my time in the Obama administration that I think is is really should be, I think, a major learning experience for all sort of people who are interested in U.S. foreign policy, be they Democrats or Republicans, was the episode around the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and U.S. efforts basically to to persuade our allies not to join. We all know how that turned out, didn't work out so well. Pretty much all U.S. allies have decided to go ahead and join the AIIB. I think the lesson from that is you can't beat something with nothing. And the idea that the U.S. could have a purely negative foreign policy, a foreign policy just based on containing China and not putting forward its own affirmative vision of what it stands for in the world, I think that is a policy that is doomed to fail. So while I think it's very important to protect um, America and democratic societies from the potential negative consequences of, of China's rise, I think that focusing U.S. foreign policy entirely around some sort of threat from China would not only have negative consequences for our foreign policy, but also for our own domestic politics. And so I think that's something we should really try to avoid.
1: What's your take on this whole rise of the democracy alliance?
0: I I think that instead of thinking of some sort of China containment strategy, U.S. foreign policy would be best served by working with like-minded democracies around the world to actually advance policies that benefit democratic societies, including the American people. So what do I mean by that? The biggest threat in the coming century is not Chinese aggression; it is climate change, and able to work. Collectively with other large democracies, the European Union, Japan, South Korea, Australia, to combat climate change on things like setting norms in cyberspace and working on some of these deterrents against non-military threats objectives, like I talked about in our conversation on sanctions earlier. That is best achieved amongst an alliance of democracies. I think the other issue here is on economics, moving beyond trade deals that just focus on lowering tariffs to ones that actually focus on combating inequality within within countries. So, I think the initiative to start a D10 that Boris Johnson put forward a few weeks ago is a great place to start and I think that should be a major focus of whoever the next US president is.
1: So, Eddie, I've always known you as a extraordinarily pro- prolific reader and you mentioned before the show that in this in these covid times you had a little more time to to burn through some books. So, um curious if you have any recs on this or really on anything that you think the listeners might be interested in.
0: Okay, so I appreciate this because there's nothing I like after reading a good book than being able to um, promote it to other people (laughs) because it's it's so fun, obviously, reading yourself, but even more fun to talk to friends who've also read the same book. So there's three that I'm going to recommend. The first is one that many uh, listeners may have already read because I'm I'm a little late to this party, but it's Jill Tours These Truths. It's a single volume history of the United States. It's about 800 pages, but you'll fly through it given just how incredibly engaging it is. And I think it's one of the most multidimensional and fair-minded sort of histories of the United States I, I could imagine really being written. So I feel like I knew American history reasonably well before, but I learned something new on almost every page. The second one is a book by my former colleague at the policy planning staff, Michael Kimmage. It's called The Abandonment of the West. This came out about a month ago. Michael is a professor of history at Catholic University And he is one of the more sort of -of jack-of-all-trades intellectuals I know. He's written a book on Philip Roth's Newark trilogy, and he's also an expert on Russian history, book is about how both the right and the left in the United States rallied around this concept of the West in the sort of middle part of the 20th century, and then basically both fell out of love with it, leaving this massive void at the heart of U.S. foreign policy. So I, I would highly recommend that. And then the third one, which I actually consider... The single best book I've ever read on post-Cold War uh, international affairs and U.S. foreign policy. It's called The Light That Failed. And it's a book by Ivan Krastev, who is a political scientist based in, in Bulgaria, as well as Stephen Holmes, who is based at, at NYU. And basically what it does is it tells the story of how liberal universalism as a U.S. foreign policy after the Cold War basically failed and led to this anti-liberal reaction you know, or illiberal reaction in which folks like Viktor Orban and Kaczynski rose to power in Hungary and Poland, Russia, and a bit on also, ironically, how illiberalism um, has come to the fore in the United States itself. Highly recommend that book to understand our world today.
1: So I'm going to throw in one too. Embarrassingly, I don't think I read one book on the civil rights movement after graduating college. And in the past you know, month or so, have tried to to rectify that, the one that has really sucked me in is Parting the Waters by Taylor Branch, which sort of brings a Robert Caro level of detail and scene painting, but also is, is very good at the um, talking about, about, about Black society in the South in the, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, the interactions between the civil rights movement and the Department of Justice and the Kennedy administration, and I think just has a big, a bigger lesson. Of course, America's working through these sorts of questions right now, but just, I think this show, a lot of foreign policy conversations are very, are very centered on, you know, elite politics. And we talk about Trump and, and, and all these different leaders. But I just did a show last week about the Hong Kong protests. There, there is an aspect of, of history, which is completely made by organizers and young people and student activists and uh, appreciating that and not, you know, just being stuck in the, clouds of the of whatever the State Department policy planning staff is is saying on any given day, I think is is a really important perspective. And this book does a fascinating job of of showing both how the movement was built and how it ended up leading the particularly the Kennedy administration, but also the Johnson administration, into places that they would not have gone otherwise had had the had the protesters not been out on the streets really making their voices heard. So with that Eddie this was so much fun. Let's uh write more China related things and we'll and we'll do this again.
0: That would be great and thank Listen you
1: for that for <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: what a swan
1: word china the next cash fall can you cash money of 什么一脸
0: 请不吝点赞